Hello and welcome to another episode of the Classic Pinball Podcast. My name is George and I'm joined by my co-host Dave. Hello, Dave. Hello, George. And we have a guest today, David Marston. Hello, David. Hi. I guess I can call myself David for the duration if that will help keep us apart from too many Daves in the pinball business. Stealing my lines already. Yes, thank you. That'll make it easier. So you are David and Dave is Dave as always. David, I'm going to start with you. Could you please uh, tell the audience a little bit about your background and then your affiliation and role with the Pintastic Pinball Show that's coming up Thursday, November 18th in Sturbridge, Massachusetts? Sure. Uh, So I started with pinball in the 1960s. And in particular, I was into pinball before Pinball Wizard was a hit record. And those were dark times back then. Uh, Pinball had a bad reputation. People couldn't tell whether it was a form of gambling or, you know, people were paid off for their free games or some other nefarious thing. Uh, But after Pinball Wizard was a hit in April of 1969, uh, that got the message out there that pinball is a game of skill and that some people were wizardly at it and of course we're all stuck with that cliche today you know it's been less than a week since somebody asked me so you're the pinball wizard huh i'm sure you guys get that too Uh, i try to frown when somebody says that and say that's kind of that's kind of a bad word i get it all the time from customers sure so that was a big turnaround for the industry of course and Uh, I started operating in 1972, which was riding that wave that began in 1969. Uh, But there was another thing happening in the business at that time, uh, new game developments. So there were quiz games, there were stand-up drivers, uh, wall games, which didn't last too long, foosball, air hockey, and the very first video games. Uh, So I was around as an operator for a lot of that coming and going and in the case of video games staying and air hockey has certainly stayed where were you an operator david in the seacoast area of new hampshire and also at dartmouth while i was attending dartmouth college in hanover new hampshire so that's on the opposite yeah we're talking about what time frame uh early 70s So starting in 72, first location in Dover, New Hampshire, uh, there was a brief foray into Salisbury Beach, which we could talk about. Uh, But I also uh, did some buying and selling, uh, acquiring things for more or less a collection, Uh, but that got going later. But I was around uh, before replay and play meter magazines started back when cash box and vending times were the dominant trade periodicals. Uh, so I've seen a lot happen on the industry side, of course. And then also uh, I was around for the beginning of organized fandom with the first pinball expo in 1985. And I've attended that and every expo since, and I'll be going to pinball expo this year. And I was around for the creation of rec.games.pinball, which got started 
from New Hampshire. Uh, with uh, you start you started that. Tom Yeager and I we sort of played off each other. Tom Yeager did the actual keyboard work, uh, collected the votes to start it, but uh, for the for we, those we were going back and forth. Know, yeah. For the, for those of us who don't know, who is Tom Yeager? Well, uh, it's understandable that you wouldn't know him. Uh, he was mainly noted in the industry for a brief time when he did the reviews for Playmeter taking over Roger Sharp's column as Roger Sharp uh, started working for a manufacturer and had a conflict of interest and couldn't do reviews anymore. Uh, Tom Yeager did that for a little while. Uh, but other than that, he's more a guy who came from fandom and saw that in the online discussion group of the time, which was rec.games.video.arcade, that pinball was taking up more than half the volume. And so he had to split it off. It was just, uh, you know, it was getting too tiring to go to a discussion of arcade video games and see all these subject lines that had the word pinball in the subject line to tell you that this is like the other world that we're sort of cramming into that news group. So oh, it was clear. Okay. That... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cut in and, and stop it for a second. Yeah. I, I could take this conversation in about 20 different directions right now, but I have to, sure. I have to pull it back a little bit. Yep. Um, tell us about your affiliation and your role with Pintastic. I want to come back to this. And the reason I want to come, back, I want to come back to the right games pinball too. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, we'll come back to it, but I, I want to come to the Pintastic piece first and then we'll go through because it'll give me a few minutes to think about a couple of questions in the direction. And, you know, I'm going to let Dave jump in uh, as soon as you're done talking a little bit about Pintastic. How's that? Well, I'm going to harp on one thing as I get there. So here we go. In the early 90s, uh, along with some other New England fans, we did the New England Pinfest, which ran for five years. So I had some experience actually running a pinball show, which came in handy in 2014 when I got word of a potential central Massachusetts, New England-wide pinball show that Gabe D'Annunzio and uh, Derek Baldessari were starting up. So I was an advisor to them from the very beginning and eventually they called me an executive which means I'm looking at the whole show and most of what I do for Pintastic is about seeing what one department of the show is doing that may have some impacts on another department because it's such a big show that you know we've got the tournament team we've got the people who worry about the free play room and keeping the games up and running and then uh we've got prize giveaways for the game bringers we've got vendors in the vendor hall the seminar program and all these different parts of the show and and when we started the, those kind of landed on top of each other sometimes in inconvenient ways so it was clear over time that we had to have more coordination. And that's my specialty. I've helped to run a number of different public events. And uh, so I had a lot of expertise in keeping things coordinated, thinking about the logistics and so forth. And we have a lot of good stuff coming for 2021 uh, for Pintastic New England, November 18th to 21st. 
Well, I have some questions, but I'll let you do the uh, the uh, proverbial commercial. Why don't you tell us about the aspects? I've been to the show. Unless you'd like me to drive the bus, I can take us in any direction. So floor is yours if you'd like it. Okay, so Pintastic New England is advertised as a family-friendly show. It serves officially the six New England states, but we spread out much farther than that. We're the biggest show in the Northeastern United States now. We get a lot of people from Canada as well when they're allowed in. And we're still waiting to see what will happen this year. But normally we would get them from the Maritime Provinces, Quebec and Ontario. Plus American states uh, out to Ohio, West Virginia, North Carolina and everything closer in. So Sturbridge, Massachusetts, right at the junction of I-84 and I-90. We're about a mile away from exit 6B off I-84. New exit numbers, drivers take note. And we start Thursday in the late afternoon, except for people who bought our exclusive limited edition passes, which have been sold out for several weeks now. They start a little earlier on Thursday. But we'll be uh, packing in the game room, the vendor hall, uh, the clubs of the area. You know, we get help from the Southern New Hampshire Pinball Club, the Western Mass Pinball Club, the Sanctum down in Connecticut runs the main tournament, the Silver Ball Rumble. Boston Bells and Chimes has a tournament for women. So we're getting a lot of cooperation. Uh, We're reaching out to pinball venues all over New England for cross promotion. And I think you'll see some interesting new vendors this year. So uh, definitely trying to get something new and fresh every year. An unusual thing this year, uh, because of the great success of the Guns N' Roses pinball machine, we have a Guns N' Roses tribute band playing on Saturday night, no extra charge. It's included with all Saturday admissions, a live band at the show. And all I'd, like other to, stuff. I'd like to ask you a question about that. Before That'd be great. Are you planning on having any special guests for uh, Guns N' Roses other than the band? You know, like maybe the person who designed it? <clears throat> uh, well, the design credit officially goes to Slash and Eric Minier, Eric being the employee of Jersey Jack Pinball. And I think Slash is going to be on tour in like New Zealand or something at that time. So we have Eric Minier, though, uh, giving a deep dive seminar. Uh, One of our great audiovisual extravaganzas. Uh, We may have four or five cameras getting all angles on the game. Uh, You can go on our YouTube channel. That was going to be another question of mine. You can find that from (laughs) PintasticNewEngland.com. Just click on the YouTube logo in the corner, upper right corner, and you can see some of our past seminars. And in particular, when we had a a deep dive on Willy Wonka, it was uh, an audiovisual extravaganza as best we could do then. We're planning to do even better this year. Well, that's why I asked you about who might uh, come to the show, because the last show, 2019, you had a couple of the actors from the Willy Wonka movie. So I thought, you know, perhaps maybe somebody else might make a guest appearance, but, you know, 50% is good. I'll take one out of two. Mm-hmm. Um, the other the other thing is, uh, I lost my train of thought. Continue. I'm sorry. 
we have uh, Brian Eddy coming, uh, probably the most beloved pinball designer ever, uh, just because of uh, Medieval Madness, Attack from Mars, uh, and there are a lot of fans of The Shadow. Uh, we have uh, connections at American Pinball, and we're not sure exactly who's coming from American Pinball, but we've been told somebody will come. We're pursuing all the factories, always trying to get people to come from the factories. And breaking news, within the past hour before the recording of this show, it was announced that Mark Seiden, big time supporter of Fantastic New England, as well as uh, New England Pinball League, uh, and justly famous for his homebrew Metroid pinball game, has joined Jersey Jack Pinball and will be uh, oh, wow. doing design work for them. Wow, that's great. So breaking news. And we haven't seen what he's doing for our show. Maybe he's uh, going to have to go out to Chicago and get oriented or something. But uh, we're well, he was a yeah, participant in 2019. Dave. Oh, he, he sure was. And we have, again, the video footage on our YouTube channel to to show him talking with Steve Ritchie back then about his game. Uh, Steve apparently uh, thought he was a good up and coming designer. The one thing I want to say about this show to our audience is I went through the games from 2019 that were new at the time. And if you, I'm, I'm guessing that most of the manufacturers will be represented at the show, but Games like Munsters, Oktoberfest, Black Knight, Swords of Rage, Deadpool, Willy Wonka, those are all fairly new back in the day. And uh, it made for a great show. Gives people the opportunity to play games they might not be able to play on location. Sure. And uh, you might remember uh, even a couple of years before that when we had the first public showing of a game from Stern Pinball. So between... Uh, automated services and coin taker, you know, the dealers and distributors, uh, they work with the factories and uh, certainly the factories know this is a great showcase. So they're working their end. And then on the collector side, <clears throat> from what I've seen on the registration so far, I know we already have a couple copies of uh, the Guns N' Roses pinball promised for the show and and you can see what's committed to come when you go to pintasticnewengland.com and on the free play games menu you just click on free play game list and you'll see all the games that have been registered so far we try very hard to get uh people to bring games from their private homes or their showrooms or whatever uh from all over new england new york new jersey etc uh, and we have a good range there. I can see we have some EMs already on the list, uh, some recent games, and uh, a game from 1932 on the list. So the full gamut of pinball. Uh, and that's just uh, as of the time of this recording with uh, much more to come, I think. I, I, would guess, I would guess that some of your distributors would bring uh, some of the newer games like Halloween, Ultraman, uh, Mandalorian, Godzilla, those seem to be, uh, you know, yeah, that's, right now. that's certainly uh, our hope. And 
I expect that they will, uh, you know, whatever they can uh, spare from their committed sales or, or they will make an arrangement for someone to pick up their game at the show uh, with possibly a discount, you know, if it can be in the showroom floor till Sunday, uh, then it works for everybody. We get a, a new game just taken out of the box at the show and then the person takes it home. We're also doing very well on the custom games this year. So uh, Zach Fry is bringing his poker game that he's been posting about on Pinside and the uh, Pincraft game from Brian Smith. And I think we'll, uh, we'll have a good showing of the custom games, especially with the news now about Mark Seiden uh, getting a job in, in the business on the strength of showing his home brew game at our show. So you, you keep watching the list. Uh, Ryan McQuaid, I, ha I have to mention him, his Sonic the Hedgehog spinball game uh, built from scratch. That's coming you to the show. He was a big winner back in 2019, if you listen to our second show, Dave, I think, right? Yeah. So that's what's coming in the free playroom as of now. Uh, good range of games, and, and we're just uh, warming up there. For the audience who's uh, potentially able to bring a game to the show, note that you get an extra bonus point if you register before October 24th. And we also give out bonus points for games designed by our guests like Brian Eddy and Eric Minier and our guest artist, Kevin O'Connor. He's done art for so many games. It's going to be easy to rack up bonus points this year. So get those games ready, folks. How's, how's it looking for, for selling tickets so far, so far and that kind of thing as the, the LEs had sold out. Yeah. The LEs sold out a long time ago. Uh, and the premiums are selling well. So the, the real hardcore pinball people who are planning to make this a, a major excursion or whatever, you know, take the days off, uh, make it a big vacation period. Uh, they're all uh, signing up. And, you know, we're, later on, we will get the more casual people, people from near Sturbridge who just decide on a whim to come. But right now, the emphasis of the people who are into pinball are going to bring games. Uh, they participate in our tournaments. Now, we have no control over the point system or when uh, IFPA uh, rankings and such uh, kick back in. But it's still going to be a strong tournament. And the uh, bells and chimes are anticipating that the women's tournament uh, they'll have to cap the registrations. So that's the plan we're going with. And I think our next email blast will probably give the details for the uh, women competitors who want to get in on the women's tournament. The women's tournament will run Sunday this year. So that makes the scheduling a little bit easier, especially because of the band Saturday night is going to compress some of the Saturday night activities. And we're still working on the logistics of that. What is the name of the band? Called Welcome to the Jungle. As far as I know, they play nothing but uh, Guns N' Roses tunes. I wonder yeah, if they have a YouTube channel out there. Well, they're on Facebook. You start from there and see what you can find. Okay. Good, good segue. Um, do you know if the tournament is going to be uh, broadcast on YouTube? I expect so. 
uh, I've been in some contact with Mark Patnod, who streamed it before on his uh, backhand pinball Twitch channel. And as far as I know, we're on track for that to happen again. I wonder if uh, our uh, Dave's friend, acquaintance of mine, but I'll consider a friend, uh, Eric Stone is going to be a speaker for the upteenth year. I guess he's done it quite a few times. We have something radically new uh, that is a new groundbreaking seminar about competitive pinball play. Watch the next email blast for the details. Oh, a little bit. It's never a... been done before. This this is a seminar on competition in pinball, the likes of which has never been done before. And, and is, when is this taking place? What day? Uh, well, we'll have to have it Friday morning so that the because it is something that will help even the top players. And I can think of certain top players, and I watch them play, and I say. I think that guy has a weakness. He could be even better than he is. And he would benefit from going to this seminar. Hmm. So no matter how good you think you are now, world-class player, top 10 player in the world, you'll still learn something new that will help you play better at this seminar. Okay. Dave, you have anything else, or do you want to backtrack into uh, your RGP RGB question? No, RGP. RGP. What did I say? B. Red games. Yeah, Let's RGP. Red time. games pinball. <laughs> Let's try that one more time. Red, green, blue. <laughs> Sorry, heads in another place. Go ahead, Dave. Yes. So, so Red Games Pinball. I was introduced to that in the early '90s. When was it? Uh, when was it actually formed? When was it actually started? The, what year? The official start was November twentieth, nineteen ninety. But as I say, Red Games Pinball was a split-off news group from rec.games.video.arcade, which was getting overloaded with pinball content. I think I was around at the same time. I think I, I kind of remember that that happening back then. And a lot of uh, early players, early, uh, you know, voices and, and uh, you know, people talking about things. And I, I was even around for the beginning of uh, Clay's Guides when he first was try trying to get talent on board to share information on how to fix your pinball machine. He's looking for talent. Um, but who knows how to fix what and compile it all in, in those great guides he put out years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, you got me on a, you know, one of my uh, campaigns is to use the right software for the right purpose. So something where you're trying to build up knowledge and get the combined wisdom working together is more appropriately done on a wiki than on a discussion forum. So if you think about whether it's rec.games.pinball which uses Usenet news software or Pinside or other modern discussion forums, which are a web application. They don't really put the knowledge into a package. All you can do is go into a thread and just read the entire thread and make your own conclusions after slugging through page after page of postings. So I'm always campaigning to try to get people to think through 
the way they're trying to convey information online or mix of online and offline and put it out in the proper format. So PinWiki exists and, and is still going on. In fact, rec.games.pinball is still going on. Uh, our top uh, technical guy, Tony Zezik, uh, still posts a lot on rec.games.pinball, for example. That's where you can find Tony on RGP? Yep. Oh, I sent a cool. word out on one of my podcasts. Well, now yeah. Hunt them down. One, of, one of the things about Usenet is that it was designed to be as durable as the internet itself. So it's not susceptible to being shut down in the conventional sense. It can, it can be impeded just like internet traffic can be impeded, but it's not like there's some guy sitting somewhere who can say, I'm tired of this and pull the plug. It just goes on forever. That's the structure of Usenet. There's, there's no central point, meaning there's no single point of failure. And no real censoring then. You're kind of wild west still, right? Or no? Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, it could, it's technically possible for one site that's passing along news to not pass along things that it believes are irrelevant to the topic area. Okay. But uh, what I've seen lately, there's, there's spam there. So uh, spam does get through. Yeah, I'll, I'll still go back there once in a while. I, I definitely do a pin, go to Pinside first, especially when you do any kind of search for any kind of weird problem you have, whatever. Pinside threads definitely come to the top of, uh, of a search like that. So Rec Games Pinball, I noticed over the past several years, have been going down to the bottom of, uh, of a query to try and out, you know, difficult problems or best practices for whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, pin stuff comes up right away. And, and while we're talking about online forums, I could also mention Tilt Forums, which has a lot less traffic than Pinside, but does seem to get the better discussions related to tournament administration, tournament director questions, and to some extent, streaming of tournaments. So there's good technical material on Tilt Forums for those who are looking to set up I'm, a rig. I'm, I'm laughing at you, David, because you're breaking the rules. Uh, one of the uh, topics that podcasts are supposed to stray away from are tournaments, but you know what? We don't, so that's staying. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I guess <laughs> I have uh, I've floated we the, the We idea. break all the rules. Yeah. We're not supposed to talk about ourselves. We're not, about, we're not supposed to say how we got into pinball. We're not <laughs> supposed to talk about tournaments, but you know what? I don't care. Dave doesn't care either. We talk about it. Yeah, I don't care, especially since we haven't really talked about it before. It's something different, so why not? <laughs> well, I sometimes float the idea that there are two worlds of pinball. The tournament world is separate, and they're hanging out on tilt forums. And anytime I say that, uh, most people uh, try to say, no, no, that's not really Their eyes true. Over but then walk away. Yeah, there's, there's, there's evidence that, you know, the people who hang out in tilt forums are in a different world. Hey, I'm a YouTube watcher, but I got to confess, I've never been on tilt forums. And I don't know why, just never have. 
yeah, if you got on there, you'd probably say, oh, it's just a bunch of tournament players. And then, yeah, that's, that's okay. You know, no talk of restoration or anything like that over there. So when you were, let's go back to when you were you know, operating and, and putting games out there in New Hampshire and so forth. Like, what, what were the titles, for instance, that we would know that you put out there? So what kind of EMs, like Gottlieb stuff or Wedgeheads or what, what titles come to yeah. mind? Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, the first game I got new in the box was Gottlieb Wildlife from the end of 1972. That's with Tarzan, kind of the guy in the front, that one there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a non-trademarked person who one would think of as Tarzan. And uh, we had a Bally Fireball, uh, Williams. Uh, I certainly remember getting the... Uh, I wanted the Williams Swinger, but they pulled a switcheroo. Swinger came out before Fun Fest, and, and when it was doing well, they they said, "Oh, we've cut off sales on Swinger, but we can sell you the Fun Fest, the four player instead of the parallel two player. It's only an extra hundred twenty dollars, which is you know we're talking prices at that time were around a thousand. So this might be uh, like 1020 versus 900 say uh so it's a substantial extra cost and uh not having that many locations that needed a four-player game uh, but and that was uh joe dylan was the uh, sales guy at seaberg north atlantic distributing in randolph massachusetts so uh that operating business dealt with all the distributors you know we didn't go exclusively with one distributor for everything which some operators do uh, but spreading out the business turned out to be a good idea uh, buying new and used games from the uh, the Bally distributor the Williams distributor and the uh, uh, Trimont Automatic was mainly a Gottlieb distributor, but they officially represented Chicago Coin for all the good that did them. Chicago Coin, okay, that's Ugh. Uh, Ugh. yeah, not really many good uh, stellar games from them. Yeah, and then of course, uh, Allied Leisure made their first uh, very uh, unfortunate attempt to get into pinball with their shaker ball games. And then, oh, those uh, are the uprights, right? And like yeah, the, the upright pinballs. Uh, like and a large, like a, a wide. Things, right, didn't they? So you shook it back and forth. Yep, wider and deeper arcade cabinet. And you had shaker handles that could move the, like Bally Nudgy of 1947 or whatever that was. Uh, you could move the play field around a little bit to really put some extra oomph in. Uh, when the ball bounces off a rubber ring or something. And then uh, we started to see uh, the foreign uh, manufacturers decide that they could actually send games into the United States, which seems like a crazy idea given uh, how much the European countries loved the American-made product. And, and yet, the pinball business just got so frantic, so overheated through the 70s that uh, companies like uh, Zakaria, uh, Playmatic, uh, Sagasa Sonic, 
those companies were sending games made in Europe into the United States. Now we show now Zakaria. I always thought it was Zakaria. Are we sure about nope. how you pronounce that one? I thought I'm, it was Zachary. I'm sure. Uh, remember that, uh, I mean, I've done a lot of things in pinball. One of the things I did is I worked extensively with Federico Croce on his book about pinball machines for Italy. So I got to ask him, you know, how do you pronounce these mm. Italian names? Okay, okay. cool. I, I have a question, David. <laughs> what was the best earning pinball machine you ever owned on route or in an arcade? That would be Gottlieb Big Indian. And when we look at it now, it, it's not really explainable. You know, you can look at the, the four that they remade in solid state and say, well, that's, that's what they thought. Uh, based on the factory point of view, they would have said the best electromechanical Gottliebs were Orbit and El Dorado and uh, then Fast Draw became Amazon Hunt. But Big Indian did better. Now, certainly El Dorado was a great game. And I have a Gold Strike, the Attaball version in my collection now. Uh, that was just the ultimate in shooting way long shots, way to the back of the field with those drop targets, the 10 drop targets way at the back. And as we know, Gottlieb made seven different titles with that playfield layout. So come again. Come, whoa, whoa, stop. Come again. One platform had seven different titles. Yeah. The, the layout of El Dorado was also Gold Strike and Lucky Strike as a single target player. alpha. Target alpha and Canada Dry uh, and the uh, two player Solar City. Yes. And then, and then later it was the solid state. El Dorado City of Gold. So those ding, 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 you pass. Terrific. I, think I didn't with, know that, but you got all seven. Big Indian sounds like they came out with the concept first and then Dally said, oh yeah, we're going to put out bow and arrow in 75. Um, well, kind of like his, seems, that seem. Uh, hard to know, know with Bally. I mean, Bally certainly was learning the value of licensing they were just sort of exploring it in 1975 um and sometimes they would slavishly imitate godleap certainly uh circus and big show are very derivative of jungle and wildlife and then sometimes they'd go in their own direction so i think there was a lot of tension in bally at the time about whether to go with the tried and true copy and Gottlieb or uh, go with what really caused excitement for ballet, like Fireball. All right. So, uh, so Dave, going back to your, your years back in the early seventies, mid seventies, I guess, late seventies and eighties, maybe. Um, oh, no, early and mid seventies, early mid seventies. So tell us about operating these games, these, uh, you know, what you operated for Gottlieb equipment, um, like what was your, um, you know, what was your heavy hitters for, you know, big overflowing cash box full of quarters, you know, any kind of memories of that and what games really, uh, you know, struck it rich for you kind of thing out there, <laughs> you know, what games were stinkers, you know, that kind of stuff, some anecdotes from the field. Well, one thing I think, uh, my business partners and I were able to avoid some of the worst stinkers like. Gottlieb Pro Football, because 
we were tipped off by the distributor to where they had their test pieces. So we would go down there and see the games ahead of time. You know, like we saw the <clears throat> Jack in the Box uh, before they were even taking orders on it. So, so we knew uh, that was going to be a great game. You know, the first of the 10 drop targets uh, games and four, four long flippers. So this is a time when long flippers were displacing short flippers, we should remember. Mm-hmm. And high hand was pretty good. Not, not great because as everybody now knows, once you drop all 16 targets, you're just flailing around uh, with very little going on. Captain Card was a lot better and uh, we were able to get a Captain Card the year after. Yeah, great so game. That, I, I had two of those. Those are those are great games. Yeah. So I would say uh, we did pretty well in avoiding uh, the clunkers on the pinball side. For Salisbury Beach, we had to get some arcade pieces. Uh, the Allied Leisure Super Shifter was that big cash cow that you spoke of. That was the number one earner every single day the whole summer wow summer of 1974 at salisbury beach really well you have to think that uh driving games were evolving uh from the chicago coin speedway was kind of a breakthrough game 69 uh where you were playing a projected image screen right that's the one with the screen right yeah or projector right not a video game. Right, projector. And you had the steering wheel and gas pedal. And and they were slowly building up. So Chicago Coin did speed shift and all these other you know, motorcycle. They embellished the idea year by year. Uh, but Allied Leisure made the sit-down one where they went to the automotive aftermarket and got a genuine car seat and had uh, had a gear shift. Uh, so you had to, you know, it was just a drag race, but uh, very compelling idea for a solid state non-video game. I have the, I actually have it pulled up right now. What year is this again? 74. So I have it pulled up now. I think I remember when this came out and I think I put a lot of money in this. How much did you, was this a 50 center? Was this when they... Broke the rule and got more money out of a game. Uh, I going from memory, I think that was a straight twenty-five cents for two exactly. drag races, but they're very quick. So, you know, it's a dollars per hour could be very high on that game. So you're trying to beat the the computer, the game that, that sets a certain yeah. time. You're trying to beat it. Something, yeah, you racing against the computer control car or something but people can pull it up online and you know arcade-museum.com has a lot of information about arcade pieces i remember this one i remember this one but i remember even more the one that almost had like a uh uh a a spinning disc inside the machine you don't really see it as a a customer but as a tech is like a disc spinning and like a an armature going across the thing and it would actually show it would show on a, on a almost a, a movie screen kind of thing. You're looking at this 
at this car. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You had to sit down. That's, in it. I think that's the Chicago coin one he's talking about, isn't it? Well, yeah, the disc on Chicago coin. You're you're looking at a road that has constant curvature because yes. it's a yes, yeah, flat disc. Yes, yeah. So that's the uh, the first one being uh, Speedway, and then as I say, they had several variations after that. And what what year is that one with the, with the disc? Sixty nine. Oh, wow. Wow. I remember that being in the bowling alley. That machine just cleaned up. <laughs> I remember that game being in the arcade in the late 70s, still taking money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and it uh, allowed Chicago Coin to, you know, keep going up through 76. Uh, that plus the twin rifle. The twin rifle had been done before, but not successfully and uh chicago coin figured out the way to do it uh so their twin rifle was another big success for them do you remember a game called valley roadrunner oh sure so that was one of about five upright arcade pieces that valley did under their brand name and this is around the time they acquired midway in 69 and eventually they, they kind of settled out that, that Midway would do the games like that, you know, the undersea raider type uh, games also, Sea uh, Rescue and things like that. Uh, but Bally had five upright arcade pieces that were electromechanical. So Roadrunner was one of those where you had, you had a black light image of real sculptures of cars and the illusion of the road uh, rolling underneath it sort of a hologram kind of thing right a little bit well it's just a split screen thing like a lot yeah. of rifles had yeah so um so the dimensionality was that you were actually looking at an actual sculpture of a car david did you run most of these games out of salisbury beach i should also mention that uh my group was closely affiliated with uh, some other uh, operators who were based in Salisbury. Uh, so some of the games after the summer was over went out on a carnival circuit, like to the Topps Field Fair and places like that. Um, and uh, we had plenty of foosball tables because another operator had actually gone to cut a deal with Rene Pierre directly from France. And for the listeners from outside New England, in New England, the French table is the foosball table. You just never got anywhere with tournament soccer or any of those solid rod things. It was the French table, telescoping, lightweight rods, metal men, and hard nylon balls for a real cutthroat game of foosball. So okay, no I, learned, I learned something today. I had no idea. So foosball was big. There were foosball leagues and stuff. And the ultimate story, really, it, you know, I did a presentation for Long Island Retro Gaming Expo last year where I, I dredged up all these memories of the arcade side of it. The ultimate game is air hockey. Brunswick uh, brought out air hockey at the MOA show in 1972. It was later to be known as the AMOA, but back then it was just the MOA. And it was the hit of the show, uh, not Pong, 
It was air hockey. Air hockey continues to this day. Air hockey is a trademark owned by Brunswick, but the license to Dynamo. So Dynamo makes genuine air hockey tables now. And other companies then as now have, you know, pseudo air hockey names, air cushion hockey or air table hockey or something to not infringe on the trademark. But, but we know what we mean, air hockey. And when air hockey came out, uh, it was a sensation. A lot of those early air hockey games, before they figured out about the playing surface, you would wear down that surface. Some of them turned into just pegboard. The holes got so big. Wow. But uh, US billiards with their stainless steel top uh, kind of showed the way. That was in 1976. Uh, the stainless steel top. Uh, it can dent, but if the dent is not near the air hole, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I'm guessing you saw one or two dented when people got a little uh, bad, let's yeah. say. Yeah. In fact, uh, Fun Spot in New Hampshire has their SSTs, their stainless steel top U.S. billiards air hockeys now. They're still running them. They run fine. So, so what year is that again? That's been the... 76 was when those came out. Okay. 72 is when the original Brunswick air hockey came out with kind of a, a laminate type surface hmm. that, uh, you know, was blue until you played too much and then it would turn brown. And so, uh, so Brunswick had a few other things to learn. Their electronics had a lot of problems in the early days, but those made so much money that operators put up with it anyway. Well, yeah, those are the days of the uh, and overflowing quarters in the cash box, and maybe I might jam the jam the mechs. It's like, why isn't this going <laughs> quarters anymore? Right, something like that. Um, I tend to think of that as the old wives' tale going back to the 1930s. Uh, that I'm saying it did happen once in a million games produced maybe uh but when it did happen that was just the talk that the the manufacturers told the distributors tell all your operators that it was out of order because the cash box overflowed I, and that i've heard that about the earliest video games i've heard that about air hockey uh it's it's just a I, a tale that uh, keeps going well i got real data on it because it happened to me <laughs> Because, but but with one uh -huh. of those, talking about what what makes a lot of money is uh, those horsey rides you get at the, you know, ice cream stand or whatever, the outside horse ride or mm -hmm. carousel, whatever. This one was a, one of those, you know, horse ride things. The guy called me up and said, hey, I know I'm working this stuff. Can you work? I said, sure, I'll give it a shot, you know. And reason being, I, I he didn't have the key for it or something, I don't know, or lost it. So I opened the thing up. It's like it was so full of freaking quarters. That's that's why it wasn't working. It could not take any more. It would not. It would. It would, it's messed up the whole trip switches and everything. So um, that was actually a, a real thing. Did where, he pay you in the quarters? Did what? He pay me in quarters? No. He yeah. He well, I cash. guess if you leave any game long enough, eventually that would happen. Yeah. Uh, on the pinball side, getting back to pinball, uh, certainly the solid state games came in. And uh, the big story of the 1970s, uh, 
apart from just the conversion to solid state, is that Atari totally spooked the traditional pinball manufacturers. They were so scared of Atari. So when Atari comes out with those ultra wide bodies, uh, bodies equal in width to the head, oh, yeah. um, the other yeah. manufacturers said, we've got to do this because because they're Atari and, and, and they must know something. And it proved to be bad for the shoulders of many pinball players uh, of the time. Uh, I, I do enjoy a couple games of Bally Paragon, but, you know, I can't play that for an hour. It just hurts too much. Um, if you're, if you're a six foot tall, like me, they're ultra wides. A tall guy can play it, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting so atari was the first uh, with the wide body and then people followed suit the gottlieb genies of the world the paragons of the world the uh stern yep. big game that came all later big game wasn't quite so bad but uh william stellar wars oh yeah there and uh contact and talk and talk about the the freaking what williams did with those lockdown bars from those bit it was like a 1957 buick uh chrome bumper that would hurt your hands it's so sharp over the years there there have been some bad lockdown bars uh i tend to think of most of the ones of the early 60s even when chicago coin came back into pinball in 62 and they had those uh ceramic type corners like this was supposed to be comfortable but no it wasn't and uh, i i see a lot of those uh the the ones with end caps, anything with end caps, they pretty much never figured out the right thing to do to make a comfortable lockdown bar. Yeah, like uh, the Gottlieb uh, stuff from the late sixties, early seventies, like uh, Foursquare had that. Mm -hmm. It sat kind of tall. Yeah, it was a, it was an extra piece uh, yeah. in in the earliest uh, stainless steel rail days. Yes. So the oldest pinball that I operated was Bally Wiggler. And that was one of their first uh, multi-ball games after Capersville. What year was that? 67? Um, yeah. And short flipper. So that one would be run at uh, one for a dime, three for a quarter. And the idea of, at least in the New England territory, was that we would use the long flippers as an excuse to go to two for a quarter. Now, from what I've seen of Attaball games at the time in Connecticut, New York State, which are Attaball territories, their long flipper Attaballs, a lot of those continued at straight dime play. In replay territories, uh, it's typically two for a quarter. Five balls per game would be the standard pricing in the early 70s. So solid state was more like the hook to go to three balls per game. Right. Three balls per game, and that's when you get uh, one play for a quarter, three plays for two quarters. Yeah, maybe, maybe um, seventy nine. If the electronics supported it, yeah. yeah. Or, or when the dollar coin came out, then uh, the dollar coin could get you five plays. Yep, the, the SBA Susan B. Anthony coin. Yep, and Bally pushed that really hard with that special door sticker. Yes, they did. Yeah, I, I try to do all my Bally's with. Uh, uh, sticker appropriate for the year did it was it, mm -hmm. was it a push that year and i'll because a lot of times you look on their uh their flyers for valley flyers at that time and the, they don't have the coin stickers on the games they're just bare stainless steel but out in the wild they they did many times 
So I try to do it appropriate, which one is supposed to. My partners continued after I left. I got a legitimate job, you know, appropriate to my college education in 76. Uh, but that business continued on for a while. And, um, and we had the, uh, the other friendly operators. Uh, so there was some trading off of locations and realignments and so forth. So on the video game side, I can say that the video game, I remember where I was still involved on the operation was probably Midway Gunfight, the first one with a microprocessor. So all the games before that, you just had uh, row after row of logic chips and everything was done hardwired in the logic. There was no program to be executed. And on the pinball side, maybe top card, Gottlieb top card, Wedgehead was the first one after I was out. Not sure uh, exactly. So you were never really involved in, uh, in solid state games? Uh, not as uh, doing the day-to-day maintenance and stuff. Okay. Which leads me to what's in your collection? Oh, it's mostly electromechanicals. Thank (laughs) you for asking. (laughs) I kind of figured that, but uh, so what games are in your collection and how many? Uh, About 25. Um, I'm thinking of selling off the Flying Circus, uh, 62 Gottlieb, so I put that on the list for uh, what I'm bringing to Pintastic. Some older wood rail games. Uh, I've got Chinatown, which is a trap hole game. Diamond Lil. Those are Gottlieb's. Uh, Williams Colors. And then in the 60s, uh, I got the, uh, the Skyline and the North Star that came out of Mountain Park in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Uh, is it North Star, the one with the Eskimos on it? Yep. Art Stenholm's Eskimos, yes. Okay. Uh, I, a rare game I have is the uh, Lariat that I brought to the 2019 Pintastic show to put next to Ty Waita's Wild Wild West so that people could see the vast number of differences between the two games. So Wild Wild West is a two-player add-a-ball that by artwork looks parallel to the two-player replay game Wild Wild West, but as far as the rules, it's way different. And what do the you rarest, think of, yeah. I was going to say, speaking of 50s Gottliebs, what do you think mm-hmm. of Crisscross? Well, I've, I've enjoyed playing it. Um, I'm not sure why you're asking about that one in particular. Oh, do, you, uh, do you have that or you don't have that game? No, I, I have played it quite a bit. Uh, when it has been at a pinball show because the reason why i ask is i just picked one up and i was gonna and it was a working one too in really nice shape and i was thinking of selling it or, or trading it or whatever but as i was as i was at the allentown show recently um just looking through all the different uh in in the flea market section someone had i think it was a uh I think a pin game journal had a whole bunch of them and just yeah. walking by when I saw the one on top it had a whole feature on crisscross. And it's like, oh, maybe I'll hold on to that game. People like this game. <laughs> maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe I should hold on to it and restore it up and play it for a little bit and, and really see if it's going to be something. Um, 
like it has the bullseye targets a uh, gottlieb thing where there's concentric target actuators and if you hit it dead center you get more points than if you hit that metal outer fan thing trap holes so <laughs> beware you know you gotta you gotta have your oh those are gobble holes those are gobble, gobble holes, holes yeah oh yeah uh, you say bye bye so, bye bye ball <laughs> yep you might get five hundred thousand points for saying bye bye but uh, uh and trap hole games have a same kind of a mentality that uh do i want to have that ball drop in the hole now and get my five hundred thousand points or would i like to bounce around some more at you know get a ten thousand here ten thousand there kind of thing speaking of these 50s games this game so i wonder back in the day they, probably, they didn't really have tournaments in the 50s for pinball right. tournaments right uh, you remember, you know? <laughs> oh the reputation of pinball is so bad back then that uh, i mean the, the october 57 better homes and gardens with that article about how pinball is stealing kids lunch money that was one of the very few magazine articles of the entire decade of the 1950s that said anything about pinball uh 60s were a little bit better you know there might have been 10 magazine articles in national magazines of which five were anti-pinball and five were Oh, look at these crazy, wacky guys who like to play pinball. So the, the reputation back then, it, it's just uh, wasn't conducive, let's say. And, and how it's turned around now. And now you see, especially the past couple of years, I've just been seeing on TV commercials, on um, sitcoms and different TV shows. There's always a pinball machine in the back and they're, they're either there or the cast is playing it. There's a lot more of like, uh, this is a cool thing to have. It's not bad for you kind of thing and um mm -hmm. this is a lot more accepted and, and promoted out there these days than years past yeah and it's a little bit surprising because the idea of games that were obsolete on location going into homes goes way back so i first became aware of pinball because my uncle had one in his basement it was a pre-flipper game so it was of course made obsolete by flippers and uh, from my earliest memories, uh, that game was there. It's, it's not like having games in the home is uh, a sudden new thing. And from uh, my operating days, many of those games were sold to home use. You know, if the trade-in value at the Distrib wasn't good enough. And this is back when Distribs liked to do... Uh, pretty good used game business uh, i think if you look at the uh, billboard and cashbox magazines of the 60s and even going back into the 50s you can get a sense of the used game business particularly for pinballs great number of those magazines online now so you can just read them week by week you can waste all your time getting lost and catching up on the industry news of uh, 60 years ago David, do you have any opinion about what we've been calling pinflation? And also, did you uh, watch any or pay attention to the captain's auction out of California? Oh, I looked at the results a little bit. Now, that's something where my operator experience uh, provides a, a balancing viewpoint because 
operating in the early 70s. This was the time of the real inflation where the dollar was really losing value uh, just across the board. Richard Nixon had his price controls, but that did not apply at the wholesale level. So those pinball machines, uh, so the single players, I think when I started, the single player was like $695 electromechanical single player. And then the next one would come up and it's 725 and the next one would come up and it's 750 and the next one would be 775 and uh, no price controls stopping them. Uh, and, and, you know, we're talking a few months between here. So this was a pretty rapid run up. Uh, so compared to that, I just see this, the current thing is like one particular consumable item, a pinball machine. Uh, oh, and maybe uh, rent for apartments. There, there's a couple components of life that are going up very fast, but it's just different from when everything is inflating all at once. I had a little uh, excursion in the stationary business and, uh, you know, any problem with the forests uh, producing paper would be an excuse for uh, the price of all your spiral bound notebooks to go up from say 25 cents to 30 cents. Now think about that percentage wise, that's you know a big increase. Inflation now, uh, it's just one particular fad. I guess I'm more in the mood to sell because of the pinflation. So that's, well, you've had that's to have my... seen a rapid rise in the and what they're getting for electromechanicals, you know, Dave and I concentrate, you know, specifically on solid state. Dave, mm -hmm. you know, dabbles in other things as well, but we're we're dumbfounded. I've only been in the hobby 20 years, but I'm just dumbfounded by the prices. Yeah, well, certainly the California auction. Uh, I thought they were going to tap out that the collecting community just could not raise $7 million for that with all the other stuff that we have to buy. But I guess it got enough worldwide publicity. I'm not convinced it was a collector community that bought that Oh yeah, stuff. right, that's what I'm saying. I think I it's the retail community who just looked at it and say, oh wow, a pinball machine and bought yeah. it. And Dave well, and I had this conversation uh, a couple of days ago. I think a lot of it was under the guise of the Banning Pinball Museum which some people might have construed as, you know, museum quality pieces, which you and I both know is probably not the fact. But they, they would at least have some uh, maintenance done to them. So it's not like random operator, you know, the kind of stuff the captain's auction usually auctions is off the route and maybe off the route deservedly so. Whereas these were in... Uh, a place that had a high amount of maintenance relative to the amount of play those games got. So I would say there's some kind of a pedigree there. And as, as George was saying earlier to me, it's like, it has the word museum next to <laughs> yeah. it, which must mean museum quality. It kind of implies things that may not necessarily be true. Right. Uh, and I have firsthand knowledge because I was there you know, for the upteenth time, our audience has heard this in uh, 2020, January 2020. Some of the games played very well. There were a lot of games that were certainly subpar. So it was it was random. But when you have a room with that many pinballs in it, 
extremely difficult to keep up on the maintenance. I mean, it, it's it's a full time job, and we all know that it's a it, it's not an easy task. But it was just uh, in looking at all the numbers, and Dave and I had first talked about banning just with what we collect over a year ago, and then here we are in September of twenty uh, one. And everybody and their grandmother knows who Captain's Auction is now. It's kind of funny. Well, yeah. Is, I had a, uh, a customer recently who gave me a call, and she has a an Adams family and a Star Trek Next Gen. And she's, you know, she got divorced. She has these games, had them for a long time. They're, I guess, they're in nice shape. But she, I guess, she had another, another tech or something come out there a couple of times. And they said, Oh, you want to sell them? Oh, you can get. I think he said, oh, you can get $15,000 for that Adams family and, and 10,000 for that start to next gen. I said, what the, what the heck is that guy smoking? Because these games aren't really, haven't been really gone over by, you know, a restoration person. They're, you know, they're home use for the past 15 years, but you know, I just know, I didn't look at them yet, but I just know that uh, I told her that those are kind of lofty prices. Even my restored stuff, I don't get that price for restored. Never mind, you know, out of someone's house. So I said, you got to, you know, um, get the expectation down a little bit. But it's like, then it got me thinking, well, is it something that I should buy from her, put some time and money into and make this really beautiful piece? And then what am I going to get on the other end? Am I going to get 20K for this stuff? I mean, it's it's weird. I had to adjust my, adjust all the pricing around these days because just it's insane what people are getting for stuff that's not even restored. Well, I could give you another data point on that. So our uh, friend of the show, Ed Kelsey, uh, was at the uh, Poconos auction, which happened after the captain's auction, just this past weekend, as we're recording now. Um, and he said that uh, the pins he was selling did very well. So there's still uh, pinflation for the auctions, apparently. Yeah, I would never, I would never buy anything like that sight unseen over the internet. I have to touch it. I have to look at it. I have to inspect it. I, I just, that's me. This whole rage now of, you know, I buy a car online. It's, it's all demographic. It's, you know, Hey, I'm not allowed to talk about my age, but you know, I'm, uh, I'm on the slope. I'm on the slope and I'm rolling downhill. Never mind a car online. You can actually go and buy a, uh, a couch and stuff online. Now it's like, don't, you know, I kind of want to test that stuff out before you deliver it. And you know what I mean? So it's all, uh, I know a lot of these things you had to go see them, feel them, touch them thing before you, uh, you know, purchase. At least that's, you know, the old school way of doing things. Well, that's what brings us back to Pintastic New England, where you'll have a chance to see all these games, and, uh, including in the vendor hall, see what the vendors are selling. And, and those special toppers, you can see whether you like the effect in person, come in and experience it, know what it really looks like in uh, your actual situation. Uh, so you don't have to just guess. Are you I'm, folks been... having uh, the flea market this year out in the parking lot? Glad you asked. The idea is that we will wait till we're within weather forecast range and make the call. So we might, if the weather's going to be good. Yeah. Well, some of these guys would just leave stuff in the back of the truck anyway. So you walk into the truck, I guess, but um, that we're holding the, the possibility open. I have another question. This is unusual for this show, or at least it's the first time where you've run the show in November. Any talk about 
going back to uh, the June time frame, or are we going to look yeah. at maybe two shows next year? Um, for 2022, we've already announced that we're doing it in June, starting on June 23rd. So end of June dates as before, and it's Sturbridge again. And I guess we'll see from there. But uh, the November thing, we've we've had some negatives on that, particularly because we're right after the trade show IAPA down in Florida, and that's interfering with the seminar program, getting some of the factory people. Uh, there are going to be some who, who fly from Orlando straight up to Boston to be at Pintastic, so it's not a total loss there, but it's, it's an issue. Uh, the whole show calendar was compressed into the back half of the year. So you've noted we've had a pinball show like every weekend uh, in October. That's going to be really intense and leading up to our show. And then uh, Cincinnati in early December is the last of the shows for this year. And I expect that the schedule will stretch back out. And of course, some other shows, you know, like West Coast shows uh, that didn't happen at all uh, will probably happen again in 2022. So as far as I can see now, uh, the trend is to go back to the classic pinball show calendar of the 2017-2018 era. What was, what was that? That's a that's a good ding because we're up to we get a, a minute thirty warning right now, so that's appropriate. Oh, that was breaking news. I think no, this this is the same. Uh, that's my texting ding, uh, and the last one told me that Mark Seiden was working for JJP. So sometimes they're they're useful for the podcast, but this is just more well, more business, more preparations for Pintastic, which takes a whole army and we're looking for volunteers. So go to PintasticNewEngland.com slash volunteer and see uh, if you want to sign up. Before we run out of time, I want to thank you, Dave. Great, great interview. A lot of, uh, a lot of terrific information and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, next month. Yeah, and, and we can do it again uh, to talk about other classic pinballs. We kind of got into the arcade pieces a lot, but we could certainly talk more about classic pinballs and, and add a ball games too. Yeah, well, there's a lot a lot more stuff we can definitely talk about in a, in a future uh, future podcast with you. You know, it's uh, Ab absolutely great. there's there's a lot of information there. Dave, sign off. All right, signing off. Classic pinball podcast. George here. Over there, Dave here, and David Marston as our guest. See you in the pinball future, folks. Take care. Dave! Who? Dave! D-A-V-E! Yeah, Dave! Dave! Right. Dr. Dave's Pinball Restorations restores games to look and play like the first day they hit the arcade. Buy a piece of your childhood back with one of the following games in our restoration queue. If you're looking for that late model pinball machine, well, we currently have three available. A stern NASCAR, the rare limited edition Dale Jr. with only 600 made. Bally, we have a Doctor Who and a Twilight Zone. And for you classic pinball fans, we have the following Bally's. A Kiss, Supersonic, Paragon, Skateball, 
Flash Gordon, Embryon, and Fireball 2. For Classic Stern, we have Sea Witch, Stingray, and Nineball. For Williams, we have a Firepower, Atari, we have a Superman, Gottlieb, Old School EMs, Top Score, and a Flipper Pool. And for Bally, Old School Electromechanicals, we have a Bally Captain Fantastic and a Bally Flip Flop. Amateur! 